You know, it is easy to be pessimistic about the future on almost every level. Things don't look any better today than they did 20 years ago when I last preached on the text we're coming to this morning. You know, then it was Iraq. Now it's Ukraine. And while the Cold War was behind us then, the specter of nuclear war has returned. Politically, things are a mess. And we're constantly being told from both the left and the right that we are in danger of losing our democracy. Confidence in government agencies that are supposed to protect our health and address the threat of pandemics has pretty much been lost. And most are convinced that pharmaceutical companies are more concerned about profits than seeking cures for diseases. On a regular basis, we read about religious leaders who prey on those entrusted to their care for financial gain or personal gratification. And senseless violence robs us of loved ones and friends without warning. The warnings we do hear all the time are about climate change. We're being told that unless we radically change the way we live, life on planet Earth will soon no longer be possible. And even now, the cost of living is beyond the means of many due to soaring inflation and high interest rates. And those of us who are reaching our golden years are facing deteriorating health and escalating medical costs. So no, the future doesn't look very good for most of us. And many are dreading what lies just around the corner. So how do we face the future with confidence? The same way Jesus did. On the night before his crucifixion, our Lord's immediate future was obviously very bleak, and he knew it. He knew what he was going to have to face, but was able to face it confidently. How did he do that? And even more importantly, can we learn anything from the way he handled it? I think we can. If we'll take a close look at the account of his arrest and observe how he responded to it, I'm convinced we can discover the keys to facing the future with confidence. And the first key is simply don't try to avoid the inevitable. We're beginning the 18th chapter of John's gospel. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, 
came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. When Jesus and the disciples left the upper room, they headed directly for the Garden of Gethsemane, a quiet place on the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem where Jesus went often with his disciples. It was a place well known to Judas. When Judas had left the room, Jesus sent him off with the words, What you do, do quickly. And both he and Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to betray the Lord. The arrangements had already been made with the authorities. Judas had sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and Jesus knew it. He also knew that Judas would lead an army to the garden to arrest him. So what did Jesus do? Did he try to avoid the inevitable? Did he alter his course to buy more time? No, no. He went directly to the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas knew he would go. And before long, Judas arrived leading an army to arrest him. And it was an army. John said Judas was leading a cohort as well as the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, a Roman cohort consisted of 600 men. That was the usual meaning of the word John used here. Now, sometimes it did refer to a smaller contingent of, of 200, but either way, it was an army. An army armed with weapons for a fight and torches and lanterns to find a fugitive. And they apparently thought they would have to search for Jesus. It was, it was full moon during Passover. So they probably didn't need the torches to light their way. They must have figured they would need to find Jesus, you know, hiding among the olive trees. But Jesus wasn't hiding. He wasn't trying to avoid the inevitable. And isn't that the best way to face the future? If you know something unpleasant must be dealt with, you might as well just face it. If it's inevitable, you're not going to be able to avoid it. So why try? And don't live in denial of what you know is coming. It'll only make it harder to face when it does come. Well, Jesus knew what had to be done. So he went directly to it and boldly faced the challenge. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore they heard him say to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. That's quite a picture. An army coming to capture Jesus 
falling on their faces before him. As they approached the garden, Jesus didn't run and hide. He went forth and boldly asked, whom do you seek? They told him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He responded, I am. The he was added by translators. With that statement, he was boldly identifying himself as the one for whom they were seeking, and he was identifying himself as God, saying, I am. It's a powerful response, one they were not expecting, and it, along with his personal demeanor, frightened them so much they drew back and fell to the ground before him. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? Can't you hear them timidly replying, uh, Jesus, the Nazarene? And him responding, I told you, I am. What a way to confront the enemy. What a way to face the challenge. I think we can learn from that. You know, Jesus did not cower before overwhelming odds. He faced them boldly with a confidence that could come only from knowing who was really in control. The immediate situation did look bad, but Jesus knew God's will and that his will would prevail. Now, it is true that Jesus had a clear picture of the future, and knew how things would turn out. That's something we really don't have. But we can have the same confidence that God will cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's a promise we find in Romans 8.28. God will cause all things to work out for our good if we love him and we're called according to his purposes. Now, we may not be able to feel it at the moment, but that doesn't mean God isn't in control. And with that assurance, we should be able to face the challenges of the future with confidence and boldness. God is still on his throne. And our eternal victory has been secured by Christ. So there's no need to cower in fear before anyone or anything. Our future is secure. So we can advance with a confidence that enables us to think about others and make provision for them. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom thou hast given me. I lost not one. Once again, it becomes obvious that Jesus was more concerned about others than himself. I told you, I'm the one you're looking for. So let these go. 
Jesus sought to make provision for those he cared about, and that enabled him to face the future with far less anxiety. And isn't it true that concern about our loved ones causes most of the anxiety we feel about the future? You know, if the economy fails, how will I provide for my kid's future? If the war escalates, will my son or daughter have to go? If I die soon, what will happen to my family? The uncertainty of the future affects not only us, but also the ones we love. So how do we face the future with confidence as it relates to them? We make what provision we can and then trust God to take it from there. That's what Jesus did. He wasn't able to get guarantees from the lynch mob, but he did what he could for the disciples and then entrusted them to his Father. We, too, can face the future with confidence if we take reasonable measures to provide for those we care about. We can't cover every possible contingency, but if we try, we can usually make the future a little more secure for those we love. Now, we buy life insurance when we can least afford it, if we have a family that's dependent upon us. We do our best to remove some of the obstacles they may have to face because we care more about their future needs than our own immediate needs. Jesus made such provision for others, and it helped him face the future with confidence. Finally, he did not fight against the Lord's will. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Jesus therefore said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? You know, leave it to Peter to jump in and start swinging. Out came his sword and off came Malchus's ear. What a feeble attempt to change the course of history. You know, hundreds of soldiers were there to arrest Jesus, and Peter thought he could stop them. Now, if Jesus had given the command to fight against seemingly insurmountable odds, that would be different. It would have been right to fight. It was obvious that Jesus had no intention of fighting. Why? Because he knew the Lord's will on the matter. He had spent time in prayer prior to this moment to affirm and to commit himself to the Lord's will. You know, John doesn't record the Lord's time of prayer in the garden, but the other gospel writers do, and it'll do us good to look at it again this morning. Matthew records it this way. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, 
sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Discerning God's will is not always easy, at least for us. But surrendering to it is hard for everyone, even Jesus. Luke told us that an angel from heaven appeared to him to strengthen him, and that he was in such agony while praying fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, Jesus did know the Father's will on this matter. He and his father had planned it together. But it still took repeated prayer and an intense struggle to embrace it. Now, unlike him, we don't always know God's will. We know his general will. It's revealed in his word. And we know much that is and is not within his will. But he has not given us detailed instructions on how to deal with every situation we might have to face. He wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. He wants us to have a trusting relationship with him and to commit ourselves to doing his will even when we don't know for certain what it is. Now, through prayer, study of his word, and the counsel of Christian friends, we can usually discern what God would have us do. But even if we're not sure, we can trust that he will guide us. We can confidently step out in faith and trust the guiding hand of God, even if we're not sure where he's leading or why. He won't turn his back on us and let us go down a wrong path if we're walking by faith, if we're trusting him 
to lead us. And unless he makes it clear we should try, attempts to change things that are within his will are bound to fail. And he will just have to patch things up after we're through, as he did with the servant's ear after Peter sliced away. We can face the future with confidence. We can stop trying to avoid the inevitable and boldly face the challenges before us if we'll discern God's will as best we can, make provision for those we love, and trust that God is in fact leading us. The bottom line is quite simply surrender to the will of God and faith in his guidance and provision. With that, we can face the future with confidence. Amen? Amen. The key is surrender. Let's commit ourselves again to that. Let's stand and sing.